Okay, so why don't we go ahead and uh, begin. Thank you for uh, coming. Uh, you probably heard the story of the uh, uh, preacher who heard that there was a widow in his church that was uh, sick. Just a second, that's my phone going off. <laughs> Let me just turn that off. So, uh, um, he heard that there was a widow that was sick, and uh, he thought he'd go by and see her during the week and just cheer her up. So he pulls up to the house. There's a car in the driveway. The windows are up. TV's on. He knocks on the door. There's no answer. He, he shouts a little louder, announces himself. Again, no one answer. He thinks that's strange. So he just takes one of his cards, writes Revelation 3.20 on the back, sticks it in the door. That's the, you know, the verse that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He thought that was clever. Goes on about his business the next Sunday after a church. He's walking back to, with the family to the minivan. There's a sheet of paper under the windshield wiper. All it says is Genesis 3.10. So he opens his Bible. Behold, I heard the sound of thee walking in the garden. I was afraid, for I was naked, so I hid myself. <laughs> and uh, the moral is uh, you don't ever know when you, who's going to show up. You don't know who's going to be when you show up. And so... Chris and I are doing something a little different this year, and we didn't know who was going to show up. Uh, typically, uh, we teach a class at Pepperdine, and uh, typically we take a, a popular sermon series that we've done in the past and tweak it and, and share it with people. Uh, but we made a decision uh, that we would like to do something different. We would like to teach together, and we'd like to do something that's very pragmatic. Uh, and so this is not a sermon series we've done together. This is just us brainstorming on some things uh, that we feel strongly about, that we're concerned about, and that we feel like perhaps we have a, a word to mention and say about. So what we're going to do uh, these next three days for whoever wants to come is, is just talk about uh, the intentional building of an evangelistic culture in our local congregations. Uh, and so the very first thing that we have to do then is say, well, what business do we have even talking about that? Uh, so let's just go ahead and get that on the table. Uh, well, number one is our passion. Uh, we care a lot about seeing uh, people far from God except Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we have a passion for evangelism. Uh, I don't think I have an evangelistic gift as strong as Chris. As Chris has an extremely strong evangelistic gifting. Uh, and yet I do know that I uh, not only have a passion to see my church be evangelistic, but I have a very strong passion in my own personal life uh, to be sharing my faith and seeing people come to Christ. So uh, from that standpoint, we feel like we have a right to speak on the subject. Uh, second, uh, we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot from doing things well. We learned a lot from doing things poorly. And so we just have a lot, between the two of us, we have about 60-something years of ministry experience uh, with some hits and some misses. And so we're going to share with you some things that we've learned. Uh, and then third, and this is awkward to talk about, but we do feel like we both represent churches that are seeing some measure of evangelistic fruit. Uh, we both are at churches that have seen for the course of our ministry there, steady growth in a season when many churches are not growing and even in decline. And, and we both are at churches where regular witness of people visibly confessing Christ and getting baptized is normal. Uh, in fact, it's just, uh, it's just uh, almost never happens that on a weekend at our church, someone or someones isn't getting baptized. So with that as a background, we feel like we've learned some things that we might be able to share that would be helpful to you. So let me tell you what we're going to do for three days. Uh, today, what we want to do is we want to just share what we think are four absolute core convictions that the leadership must hold if you're going to develop an evangelistic culture in your church. Uh, we'll share what those are and why we think they are so critical uh, day two, we are going to unapologetically contend for how our 
corporate gatherings and our weekend assemblies can be more evangelistic. Uh, we'll make a defense tomorrow for uh, why we believe the weekend service has tremendous potential for evangelism and why we strategically use our worship gatherings as platforms for evangelism. And we know that goes counter to what some think the weekend gatherings are for, but we'll make all that clear tomorrow. And then on day three, we're going to talk about how specifically as leaders we must lead the way. There are some things leaders can do. Uh, I don't believe churches are going to drift into evangelism. I just don't. In fact, I think you see even in Scripture, churches inevitably drift toward focus on the insider. And so it must be the intentional strategy of the leader to keep the empty chair at the table and say, who's speaking for the person who isn't here? And what are we doing for those who aren't here yet? Who's going to be their voice? And so that's what we're going to do for three days. It will be our intention, especially on day three, but even perhaps on day one or two, just depending on how long we go, to leave a little space for a few questions. And so uh, we may do that today. We will definitely do that tomorrow. And probably on Wednesday, we're going to leave about 20 minutes. So if you have a good question, you might want to write it down. If we don't get time for it today, we'll get time for it uh, on Wednesday. So thank you for coming. Uh, it's encouraging to see this many people here. Your presence here suggests that you too care about seeing people far from God move closer to God. And maybe that's where we're going to start. And that is before we talk about uh, improving or creating a more evangelistic culture in our church, maybe we should just define what it is we're trying to create. What do we mean when we talk about evangelism? So I'm going to turn it over to Chris and let him address that for a moment. Uh, I appreciate Rick giving the context for what we're doing here. And many times, uh, in, in many ways, we're talking about helping someone make an intentional decision to follow Jesus. Uh, we're all familiar with the language of uh, being on a journey with Jesus. And I think we've recovered a lot of that language in our conversations in church, maybe over the last couple of decades. But also, every, every journey at some point requires a decision. And so we're, uh, we'll talk some about that here over these next three days. What do we mean primarily by evangelism? We'll just start here. That word evangelism, of course, has something to do with uh, the term joyful news or good news. Uh, most of you are familiar with the fact that in the days of Jesus, uh, when a great victory would be won by a country on a foreign battlefield and news uh, came back to the capital city of that foreign country of the great victory that's been won, technically that was an evangelistic message. Uh, evangelism is an announcement that a victory has happened. Um, it is uh, not advice, it's news. Evangelism is related to uh, the news that something historic has happened that will make a difference in people's quality of life. When messengers would return to Athens or to Rome with word of a battle that had been won in a foreign land, uh, it was that, hey, news of something historic has happened uh, that is making a significant difference in the quality of people's lives. Uh, another example would be when a Roman emperor uh, would have a son. Uh, the news of that was an announcement that something historic has happened that's going to make a difference in the quality of your life and in the furthering of this empire. If you're with me so far, say amen. amen. The reason that's why that's so important is that evangelism is not necessarily about what we're doing. It's first about what God has done in Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation. Amen? amen. And so one thing we understand up front is that this is an announcement about something that God has done in Jesus Christ. This is not an announcement about something that we are doing. Um, and so uh, in many ways, that's kind of the groundwork that we are starting from. It's not advice, it's news. And by the way, it's not bad news, it's good news. It's not about what you're doing, it's about what God has done in Jesus. Uh, and it's also something that is personal. 
I think of what uh, John says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, that which we've seen, which we've heard, which we've touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. I think of Mark chapter 5 and verse 20, where Jesus tells uh, the uh, man whom he cast the legion of demons out of, go back to uh, your hometown and uh, tell the people uh, how much the Lord has done for you. Uh, I think of John chapter 9 and verse 25, when they're interrogating the blind man who had been given sight. And uh, they're asking the blind man, some, the once blind man, some questions about who they think Jesus is, whether or not he's a sinner. And this guy doesn't know much. He can't even answer the question as to whether or not Jesus is a sinner, if you read the story. But he says, listen, whether this man is a sinner or not, I don't know. But what I do know is I once was blind, but now I see. One of the things we want you to hear in this class is don't let what you don't know keep you from sharing what you do know. Um, and uh, I hope that in many ways our gatherings here will set us free in some ways uh, and realize that it's not all on you and it's not all up to you. This is about what God has done in Christ, not what we're doing. And this is about you not letting what you don't know keep you from sharing what you do know. One of the things we want you to understand, too, is that um, any attempt you make to share something of what God has done in Jesus Christ, some of the story, some of your faith story, any attempt you make, you are making uh, and you're entering into a conversation that's already going on. None of us are starting from ground zero with any human being. There's a conversation that's already going on in their head regarding God, regarding the purpose of life, regarding how they deal with their past. Uh, this happens over and over in Scripture. One of the most beautiful things, I think, happens in, in Acts 8, 9, and 10. You see this, these uh, arrangement of stories. In Acts 8, you've got the Ethiopian eunuch mm -hmm. who's reading Isaiah. God is already at work, and the Spirit moves Philip to go and approach the Ethiopian eunuch. And when Philip goes into the scene... He is already being, he's already intersecting with a conversation that's happening between the eunuch's heart and the Lord. Uh, in Acts chapter 9, you've got Ananias, who is alerted by the Spirit that God is doing something significant in the life of Saul. It's difficult for Ananias to believe. He tries to lecture God about what he's doing, if you know that story. But eventually, he runs into Saul, and he intersects with something that God's already doing in Saul's life. In Acts chapter 10, you've got Peter who's being alerted by the Spirit. And he intersects with Cornelius, who God is already at work in Cornelius' life. Amen? Amen? And so over and over throughout Scripture, we have these stories that we look to to learn about evangelism, but they often involve God bringing a believer and allowing that believer to intersect with a conversation that's already going on in the life of a Ethiopian eunuch in the life of Saul, in the life of uh, Peter. None of us are starting from ground zero here. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus comes along on the road to Emmaus. Two fellows are talking about what happened in Jerusalem the previous weekend. Jesus comes alongside of them and enters into their conversation that they're already having about the events of, uh, around Jesus of Nazareth. And before you know it, uh, Jesus is sharing the gospel about himself. We'll talk about that a little bit later. None of us are starting from ground zero with people. God is at work. He, yeah, absolutely. He wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants everyone to be brought to repentance. That God is at work pursuing the hearts of people. As Paul said in Acts 17, he determines times in people's lives and the exact places where they live. God does this so that people would reach out for him and seek him, though he is not far from each one of them. For in him we live and move and have our being. And God is a God who's in white, hot, zealous, passionate pursuit of relationships with people. And none of us are starting from ground zero. Amen. Amen. And none of us are in this alone. I've got a neighbor across the street named Lucia. She's a Jewish woman who grew up in Beverly Hills, of all things. She's married to a chef of a very nice hotel in downtown Dallas. They have been coming to uh, the branch for 13 months now. Her husband grew up Anglican in London, trained in Paris as a chef, 
They met on Catalina Island 25 years ago. They have a 16-year-old daughter who's a gymnast. They moved in across the street from us 13 or 14 months ago. Uh, we got to know them a little bit, had them over for dinner. They have been in the life of the branch for the last 13 or so months. Just recently, her 16-year-old daughter uh, was baptized into Christ. Uh, Lucia's in her early 50s. She's still on this journey. She comes every weekend. I don't believe she moved in accidentally across the street from us. We're in a conversation about six months ago. She's in her home, and we get to talking, and uh, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus and what she assumes about the resurrection of Jesus, what she was brought up assuming. We're also talking about uh, what I believe about the resurrection of Jesus. She said, can I ask you another question? I said, sure. She says, can you tell me how Jesus died a second time? I'd never been asked that question before. <laughs> a second time? She says, yes. I mean, I know you say he came back from the dead, but what, how did he die a second time? And I said, well, we, I don't believe he, he did die a second time. I, I read the Gospels and Acts the way you might read the Torah. And so I take it as, as the word of God, and according to the scriptures, he didn't die, he ascended or transitioned into the realm of the heavens. And I'll never forget, she looked at me standing up in my kitchen, and she went, so you're telling me, <laughs> she couldn't even say it out loud in our kitchen. She was almost embarrassed to say it, and it stunned me that she's looking at me like, you're telling me he's alive? And one of the things that concerned me is she's just now coming to believe that I really believe he's alive? And I said, yes, we believe he's really alive. She said, I thought that was just something you Christians said as kind of a creedal statement. So I'm in process with Lucia right now. She continues to be among us, along with her husband and her daughter, who's just become a follower of Yeshua. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Lucia has told me on the journey is she's afraid that if she responds to Jesus, she's turning her back on everything she's learned. And one of the things that I was able to help her understand is you're not turning your back on everything you learned. You're responding to everything you've learned. Mm -hmm. If anything, I'm the one that's joining you through Yeshua. I'm following a Jew too. You're responding. And so I want you to know up front I'm in process personally attempting to live and walk this out with people in my neighborhood, with people in my gym, that uh, we're not here as a church growth strategy this morning. We're here with a burden. So I'll turn it over to Rick. So um, I'm sure the reason you're here is because you have a burden too, and, and we should. Uh, we want to take a moment before we get to the questions to just talk about uh, the current state of churches, especially in our culture. Now, I, I'm not a doom and gloom guy. Let me tell you, around the world, Christianity is doing quite well, and it is thriving in a, from a global perspective. Uh, two trends, I think, are, are worth noting. One, it seems to me Christianity is growing primarily in churches that have more of a non-denominational spirit. And frankly, uh, the charismatic churches are just flourishing. And I think the future is going to be for churches that have a very uh, non-denominational uh, tone and are very open to the spirit and to the move of God and to the supernatural. I think that's going to be the future for the church. But the church globally is doing quite well. What is true is that the church in uh, the West and North America and Europe uh, seems pretty stagnant. Uh, again, even there, I, I'm not... Uh, as doom and gloom as some. When you study the real numbers about committed Christians, those percentages are still pretty stable. 
What's happened, I think we all recognize, is that consumer Christianity is fading away. Cultural Christianity is fading away. Uh, we're no longer the home team, and there's no longer any advantage uh, in our culture to being a cultural Christian. And so we're seeing that fade away. I'm not even sure that's a bad thing. Uh, maybe God is pruning His church for a new season of harvest. Now, maybe that's a good thing. But the reality is um, uh, the American church uh, does appear to be in decline. And uh, churches of Christ most definitely are in decline. I think we all know that. We've all seen uh, the numbers. Uh, the most recent study I saw that I thought was pretty thorough uh, currently, nine churches of Christ are closing every month. Uh, we're losing about 2,000 adherents a month in churches of Christ. Uh, by the year 2050, our fellowship will be half the size it is now. Uh, and I, I don't say that to alarm you, but I think you know the first step of leadership is to assess reality and to be honest about where we really are. Uh, the one thing I do want to speak to for a moment, because we get these calls all the time, I think among many leaderships, well, if we'll just be a progressive church of Christ, that'll fix everything. Progressive churches of Christ are in decline. Uh, 30 years ago, I could go to any city in America and say, let me find the progressive church of Christ, and, and, and it would be growing, okay? And the reason why is baby boomers, my generation, had enough denominational loyalty that we would find the most open-minded church in town, and we would move there. Go and look at the numbers of those churches. They are all in decline. And by the way, you know what it means to be a progressive church of Christ? It means you put words on the screen and you let divorced people place membership. I mean, come on. And what's happened, I think, and this is kind of interesting to me, when my generation left the Church of Christ, they left angry. Our children are leaving Church of Christ, and they're not angry. They're just leaving. And frankly, part of it is because we've discipled them to leave. We, we raised them on a healthier theology. We taught them that we're not the only Christians. We taught them that we're saved by grace. And, and so they, get, they leave home and they say, that mission trip was awesome. Thank you very much. Goodbye. And they go. And so our fellowship is becoming very, very old. So I think that decline that you've seen that's been kind of slow the last 10 or 20 years is about to do with this. Because our churches are getting old. Now, good news is I believe in Easter. And so what I believe is that God can do resurrection wherever He wants to do resurrection. Amen. And so I do believe that I can't speak for what the, the overall state of the fellowship is going to be like in the next generation. But within that fellowship, I think there's going to be a lot of churches that experience a true Easter and a true resurrection. But they're going to do it because they have a burden for the lost. Because they actually believe again that their mission is to reach people far from God and help those people make a decision. And by the way, that's part of what we mean when we're talking about evangelism. We're not talking about this generic, just kind of being a nice person with a Jesus veneer. We're talking about helping people who are far from God make an intentional public decision to follow Jesus. That's what we mean. And, and I think that can happen again in many of our churches. But we're going to have to recover a burden we're lost people. And we'll define what we mean by that even in a, just here in just a second. And honestly, I'm not sensing it in so many of our churches. I, I'm sensing in most of our churches, we're much more concerned about who might leave than we are who might come. I'm sensing in a lot of our churches and our leadership more of a mentality of our goal is to keep the peace than it is to reach the lost. Um, and so, about seven, eight years ago, I had a chance to be a mentor to a number of young preachers uh, who had trained at different seminaries across the country. They all had uh, graduate degrees. They were all uh, great thinkers, uh, gifted uh, speakers. And I just went around the room and I just asked them, so what's the greatest challenge facing your church right now? And uh, they all went around the room. Every single one of them gave me a challenge, and it was all an insider-focused challenge. And so I just spoke. I said, do you realize not a single one of you said, 
Greatest challenge facing our church right now is reaching people who are far from God. And they all kind of admitted, yeah, that's right. Are your churches reaching people that are far from God? No, they're not. And then I went and asked them, I said, when you were in seminary, two, three, four, five years, did you one time have one professor share one example of what they were doing to speak Jesus to someone who was far from God? And they said, no, not one time. And so we're putting into our churches today a generation of young men and women who have not, I think, been trained, been empowered, and been burdened with a mission to reach people far from God. And so what we're going to do now is kind of transition. And we're going to ask four questions that we think are absolutely critical to creating that kind of a burden. Questions that I think every young minister ought to be uh, trained to ask. And, uh, and we're going to speak very boldly into these questions. Uh, they might make you just a little bit uncomfortable, but I think that's okay. I think we all agree more of what we're doing now is not the answer. And so the very first question we want to ask is this. Have we lost a theology of the lost? So speak to that for a moment, Chris. Several years ago, uh, there was a Formula One Indy car race um, that was taking place. And uh, it, I don't follow car racing, but it was the lead story on SportsCenter uh, because of an accident that had happened. An Indy car was being refueled, and the Formula One cars run on methanol. Um, and the reason that's important to know is uh, when the car was pulling out from the refueling station, uh, they hadn't had time to unhook the hose from the gas tank, and so it pulled the hose out with it, and ethanol went everywhere, and things caught fire. But what was so strange is, the reason they were running the story on SportsCenter is literally this guy crawled out of his car and was rolling around on the ground, and it looked like he had gone crazy because you couldn't see the fire because methanol burns invisibly. And you watched the Formula One car literally erode right in front of your eyes. It's like somebody was taking a magic eraser and erasing it. You couldn't see the fire. But this man in his fire retardant suit was feeling the heat and the car was literally coming apart right before your eyes, but you couldn't see the flames. That has always stuck with me. Part of believing and recovering a theology of the lost is that we are surrounded by people who are being consumed. You can't see the flames. But the enemy has come to steal and kill and destroy, and we're watching people being eaten alive by various things around us. You just can't see the flames. I think this first question is a really important question. This uh, question of have we uh, or do we need to recover a theology of the lost? I'm mindful that Jesus himself used this word. In fact, in the only places in the Gospels that I can think of where Jesus basically repeats the same theme three different times, three stories in a row, back to back, Luke chapter 15, he uses the word lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, really there was more than one lost son, but it was lost all throughout Luke chapter 15. And then this theme of being sought and found, and then this theme of being celebrated. It's Jesus' three-peat. It's the only place in the gospel he seems to repeat this theme back to back to back to back is Jesus used this word lost. When we talk about lost, we're saying that when you're lost, you are not where you belong. Human beings were created to live in an intimate relationship with God. When we are not walking in this intimate relationship with God, we are lost. That word lost is also tied to the word perish. You ought to look at the word perish some in the Gospels. 
Perish literally means to come apart. Um, I think for a long time, maybe many decades ago, uh, we thought of lostness in terms of what happens to somebody after they die. Um, I do think we need to recover or explore or uh, reconsider uh, the understanding of judgment and eternity into this conversation. Um, Jesus spoke about hell a good bit in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Jesus spoke about life and realities beyond the grave. And Jesus also spoke about our, how we respond to him has everything to do with one's life and destiny beyond the grave. These are huge, huge variables. And I, I think in many ways we need to recover some of these variables uh, today in this discussion. Um, but this is also not just about life beyond the grave. This is also about life before the grave. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9. I love what uh, Paul says when he says, Christ Jesus came and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Life before the grave is how I like to think of it. And life beyond the grave. And Jesus came to make both possible. And I'm into his whole life policy. <laughs> and in one reason why I, I want to share Jesus and help people respond to Jesus is I just don't think your life beyond the grave has everything to do with it. I think your life before the grave has everything to do with it so that you can live while you're alive because I came that you may have life and have it to the full, John chapter 10 and verse 10. Amen. Um, there's been, uh, there was a popular report here reached, released recently about um, uh, uh, well over half of all millennials surveyed in this large survey talked about how they thought it was not appropriate. They, they no longer believed in evangelism uh, because we thought that could be offensive sharing uh, uh, our faith with someone else. Um, I've heard some people say, Chris, isn't it presumptive or presumptuous to, to share these things with other people and to imply these things with other people? Uh, I, I would just, I'll go ahead and just say this. I, I know a little bit about this. Uh, I lead a men's group in my community on Wednesday mornings at 6.30. It's made up primarily of men from the gym and from the school system that we're involved in. I've lived in the same house for 19 years, by the way. We raised our kids in the same school system. I've gone to the same gym for 10 years. Um, I've had the blessing of seeing eight men come to Christ at, at, from the gym over the last 10 years. By the way, I was entering into a conversation already going on inside their heads. Okay, so, but one thing I've learned is when they began to get honest with me, they began to say, man, it's awfully presumptive that Jesus uh, tells people to go and make everyone his disciples. That's presumptuous. Go into the world and make disciples of all nations. That's presumptuous. I'm telling you how an outsider sees this. I know this from people who weren't believers telling me this. And I encouraged them to think of it this way, and I think we need to recover it. There's a school shooter in your kid's elementary school. You have a teacher standing by the exit door saying, Follow me rather adamantly. Is that presumptuous or is that an act of mercy? And part of Jesus' call for people to follow him, it's an act of mercy. He knows the way to life abundantly. But for me to really be engaged in that call, I have to begin to see things the way he sees things. He saw people as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Mm -hmm. And we've got to recover this, this lens of being able to see people as lost and call it what it is. Mm -hmm. Even Randy said last night mm -hmm. that this changes how you begin to see the world between there are people who know and there are people who don't yet know. And you want, to be respond, you want to be responsive in that regard. And so this is a huge, huge thing. I'll close the story. I'm going to turn it over to Rick again. A few years ago, my wife, we have three sons at home. 
uh, a few years ago. My wife lost her, uh, couldn't find her suburban keys one summer afternoon. We had about a dozen boys over at our house, and uh, they were all 11, 12 years of age. And she got frustrated. She had to leave. And so she said, $20 to whoever can find my suburban keys. And I mean, you saw these dozen boys. They moved with the speed of Usain Bolt when, when they heard that. And they turned our house upside down. In a second, one of them found those keys and tossed them to her. She dropped a 20 on him and walked out the door and got in the suburban. And she's driving down the little alley behind our house. It's a moment of quiet. And out of nowhere, this doesn't happen to her all the time, but out of nowhere, just a statement shot across her heart. And it was one statement. When's the last time you searched for one of those boys in your own house, the way you just searched for those keys. Because almost all of those boys come from families where none of them have any kind of church home. She came home that night and told me that story. Man, it reframed things for both of us because she was in this world of raising three boys and feeling so sequestered at home. And in a moment, that just reframed her to where she realized, yeah, I got a mission field right underneath this, these 2,100 square feet at 135 Newport in Coppell, Texas. Years later, one of those boys, Brock Brosden, lived next door to us. His family didn't go to church. Now he's 19 years old, living in Kansas City, a believer, planning on going into youth ministry. 17-year-old boy, Brandon Taylor, point guard on the Cop Hill High School basketball team next year. I could go on down the line. It was a reframing moment when we began just to realize, you know what? There are people who are lost. They're wandering right underneath our noses in our own neighborhood. And God is pursuing them. And I think that's important because uh, we've you know, you're, you're, the language you use says a lot about what you really believe. And we don't even use the word lost anymore. We, we use unchurched. We use seeker. We use on a journey. Uh, I'm, I'm not against those words. I'm just saying, what, what's the word Jesus used? I came to seek and save the lost. Well, what does he mean by that? Now, Mark 4, Master, don't you care that we perish? That's the word. Uh, Second Peter, God is not willing that any should perish. That's the word. John 17, none has been lost, Jesus prayed, except, and he speaks of Judas. That's the word. It's a big word. It's Jesus' word. And we need to recover and think through, what does he mean by that word? Because that's the people he came for, and that's the people we should be burdened for. Okay, so I think that's the first question that churches with evangelical cultures have answered and wrestled with. They have a theology of the lost and what that means and who it is they're trying to reach. Here's the second. Are we convinced that Jesus is the way, not a way? Are we convinced that Jesus is the way, not a way? So, recently I asked my church, why are you a Christian? And you're going to get, basically, if you ask, let's go to your youth group at your church and ask them, why are you Christians? You're going to get three answers. Number one, because my, my family's Christian. Or number two, uh, because I had an experience. Because I'm kind of an experience with God, so I became a Christian. Or number three, uh, well, I tried it, and my life got better. I was in a bad place, so I tried Christian, and life got better. That's why I'm a Christian, okay? Here's the problem with those three answers. You can say, that's why I'm a Buddhist. You can say, that's why I'm Muslim. You know, my parents were Muslim. I had this encounter, or I tried it and my life got better. So why are you a Christian? There's one answer to that question that matters. Because it's true. I'm a Christian because it's true. That Jesus of Nazareth was a real person who really died, who was really put in a tomb who really did come back from the dead, who really did ascend into heaven, who really sits on a throne, who really will return, who really is who he claimed to be. I'm a Christian because it's true. 
and I hammer to our youth uh, ministers all the time. I want you teaching our kids three things. Because when they leave here, they're going to go to some secular school and their foundation is going to be hit hard. And Andy Stanley says it well. It's, we're blaming our universities for studying our kids out of faith. And he says, you can't study something, people out of something they were never studied into. Okay? I do believe there's going to be a, a necessary return for some strong apologetic training in our churches. Why do we believe what we believe? Why do we think it's true? I tell our youth pastors all the time, I want our kids, when they leave here, to know three things. I'm answering, why do I trust the Bible? Who do I say Jesus is? Why do I believe in the resurrection? If you study people into those three questions, you give them a foundation that can handle some pretty tough storms. But those are three big questions. Why do I trust the Bible? Who do I say Jesus is? What about the resurrection? Our faith is not built on principles. Our faith is built on the claim of a historic event. Our faith didn't start 3,000 miles away and 300 years after that claim. It started in the place where it should have been the easiest to debunk it. That Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. I'm a Christian fundamentally because I believe it's a true story. That it happened. Okay? And because of that, I don't believe Jesus is a way. I believe He is the way. And if you don't believe that, I think it's going to be very, I think it's going to be impossible to create an evangelic culture. Oprah Winfrey, the uh, goddess of our age, says, Does God care about your heart or whether you call his son Jesus? And she spoke so well where most people are. What really matters is that you be a good person, that you be sincere, and you believe whatever you find to be true for you. The empty tomb cannot be true for you, but not true for me. It's either true or it's not true. And if it's true, it's a life changer. And I think it answers two questions that I think we have to answer. One, who's the identity of Jesus? Who is Jesus? Christianity is based on the life and the character and the identity of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to preach Christianity. Jesus is Christianity. He is the issue. He said in John 8, I tell you, if you don't believe that I am who I say I am, you will indeed die in your sins. So who did Jesus claim to be? And the core assertion of the gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God. If Jesus is not more than just a good person that we say nice things about, the whole story crumbles. Mark starts the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. John ends, these are written so that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that believing you'll have life in His name. Fifty times the New Testament refers to Jesus as the Son of God. 1 John 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You've got to be absolutely clear on the identity of Jesus. And by the way, anyone who says Jesus never claimed to be God hadn't read the Gospels. Okay. He claimed to come down out of heaven. He called on people to pray in His name. He said He had the authority to forgive sins. Enough of the nonsense Jesus was just a good man. Jesus knew who He was and He wants everyone else to know it. So we have to believe in his identity, and then I think it's absolutely critical we believe in the necessity of a relationship with him to have our sins forgiven and to be made right with God. He is not a way, he is the way. I, my people hear me say all the time, and I just, because I have a lot of visitors in my church all the time, that if you've heard all religions are basically the same, you've been told a lie. They are not basically the same. Two weeks ago on Easter, I said it again. There's only one religion whose founder claims to have come back from the dead. And then just last week, doing the Adam and Eve story, I said, there's only one religion where God pursues the sinner instead of telling the sinner how to clean himself up and go and find God. And so they're not all the same. And what makes it different is Jesus. We believe everybody needs a way back to God. That all have sinned and fallen short. 
We believe someone has made a way. See, the biblical critique of all other spiritualities is they can't build a trustworthy bridge over this chasm that separates man from God. They propose different ways to do so, and they all say basically the same thing. Build your own bridge, and the consistent witness of the Scriptures is your bridge is not long enough. It falls short of the glory of God. It might be bigger than somebody else's. It's never going to be big enough. The cross is the only bridge that can reach God. Jesus didn't come to be your life coach. He came to be your Savior. And so we teach that nobody can come to God by any other way. And we recognize, like the millennials, this is offensive to people. Paul said the cross and its message will be offensive to religion. Religion says you can obligate God. Christianity says God is not in your debt. You're in His. Religion says you can improve your resume. Christianity says man produced righteousness is worthless. Religion says there are good people and bad people. Christianity says there are broken people and Jesus. Religion says you can build your bridge. Christianity says God must build it, pay for it, and give it to you. God has made a way for people to be right with Him, Romans 3. This is true for all who believe in Christ because all people are the same. All have sinned. They're not good enough for God's glory. They all need to be made right with God by His grace, which is a free gift. They need to be made free from sin through Jesus Christ. God gave Him as a way to forgive sin through faith in His blood. And so, we believe that we have to be more clear about this than we've been. I think the Scriptures were... Paul said there's only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. John said, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Peter said, salvation is found in no one else. There's no one other name under heaven given to mankind of which we must be saved. See, this is our mandate to be a missionary church. What business do we have going across the street or around the world and saying to anybody who worships any other way, you need to stop that way and you need to do this way? What business do we have to do that to anybody? It's because we believe there is only one way. There is the way and His name is Jesus. And by the way, we also teach that while that sounds exclusive, in fact, one of the earliest criticisms of Christianity was it was so inclusive that anybody can come to Jesus, that anybody can reach God through Jesus. All can be saved in this same way, Paul says, Romans 3.22, no matter who we are or what we've done. E. Stanley Jones was asked, a great missionary to India, he was asked by a Hindu one time, what Christianity offers that his religion didn't, and he replied, Jesus Christ. And that's the truth. And so we have to be absolutely convinced of this. Um, we need a theology of the lost. We need to be returned to the truth that we are sure that about the truth of the identity and the necessity of Jesus. And then we think uh, there is a third very important question that we need to start asking in our churches. Uh, and we want to be clear here, and, and the potential to be misunderstood is great, so we hope we're not, because we believe in good works. And we believe in doing well by our neighbor. We believe in letting our light shine. We believe in loving people well, whether or not they ever respond to our faith. We believe in all that. But the question we want to ask now is, have we divorced justice from evangelism? Have we divorced justice from evangelism? And that's, by the way, a question that takes a lot more time than we're going to have time. So we're just going to start the thought process. I heard Scott McKnight say some years ago, and that this single question still continues to haunt me. Is it kingdom work? if we never mention the king. He was responding to how many churches now we go and we build houses or we send kids on mission trip and they paint fences 
And we call all this mission work, and we never have a single conversation about Jesus. Is it kingdom work if we never mention the king? Now, I love the fact that so many of our churches are more engaged in serving our communities than we have ever been. And I would not want that to stop. But I, I, again, I want to say, I don't see it as justice or evangelism. I see justice and evangelism as connected and inseparable. So let me use this illustration, uh, and then I'll turn it over to Chris to finish this conversation. Um, so I want you to imagine that you have a neighbor who doesn't know God, who doesn't walk with Christ, not a person of faith. And because you are a Christian, you want to be a good neighbor. You want to do good things, and you want to be a blessing to your neighbor. Your, uh, your neighbor breaks his leg, so you go over for the next month and you mow his lawn. Your neighbor's wife has a hysterectomy, so you pick up the kids from school for a couple of weeks while she's recovering. Your neighbor has hell damage to the roof. You get up there and help your neighbor put some shingles up. Your neighbor's in the hospital dying of cancer. And you go and you visit your neighbor. And your neighbor dies. What gospel have you taught your neighbor? You have taught your neighbor the false gospel that good people go to heaven. Let that sink in for a second. The gospel you have taught your neighbor is God saves good people. Just be a good person. Is it kingdom work if we never mention the king? Should we stop doing good works? Of course not. But what we need is a definition of justice that includes a proclamation of good news. And so I want Chris to come and just talk a little bit about the importance of words. You know, uh, Rick was just talking about... Uh, talk. Reflecting on that, I was thinking about Philippians chapter 2 around verses maybe 15 and 16, I believe, where he's talking to the Philippians about their attitude. And he says, do everything without complaining and arguing. Then he goes on to say, as you hold out the word of life. And, and uh, a, few, a couple of years ago, we were doing some work. We have a big summer sack, uh, a sack summer hunger program at our church in the summers where we feed several hundred families around our campuses who are, uh, who are reliant upon uh, the school system to feed their children a couple of meals a day during the school year because of their impoverished state. When school's not in session, maybe their kids eat once a, a day. And so we, we feed families around our campuses through the summer when school's not in session and uh, do food deliveries every week. Uh, for that week, and uh, there was a philosophical disagreement we were having amongst ourselves over, hey, we want to always include an insert uh, about our church in with these, and some on the leadership team were saying, no, let's not, we just, we want to take care of people with no strings attached, we're not doing this to get them to come here, and so there was that debate going on, uh, and maybe you're familiar with a debate like that, uh, but where we landed was, uh, we understand that, we, we, we want to be caring for these people who are in great, great need, and we have a heart for them, but we also are conscious that we need to find some way to hold out the word of life. Amen. And it's a both and. Um, words are necessary. Uh, we like to use the old line from St. Francis, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. There's some debate over whether or not I even really said that, but it sounds sexy, but it is necessary to use words. If even Jesus in Luke 24 shows up on the road to Emmaus to talk to two fellows about the events that just happened in Jerusalem, and then it says, using Moses and the prophets, he explains everything in the scriptures, because Jesus' Bible was the Old Testament, everything in the scriptures that were concerning himself. Jesus preached the gospel about himself to those two on the road to Emmaus. If not even Jesus 
would avoid using scripture to declare the gospel about himself, what does that say about the rest of, for the rest of us? You know? mm -hmm. That even Jesus came along and had to deliver a word helping them to understand the significance of the events that had just transpired and to connect the dots for him. Nobody on Easter morning fell on their knees and said, this means we can be forgiven of our sins. Nobody says that. Everyone needed a word to connect the dots between the significance of what transpired in the cross and the tomb and what it means for their life. Mm -hmm. Everyone does. That's the meaning of the name angel. The name angel, angel means messenger in Scripture. The angels are showing up at Jesus' birth, helping people connect the dots as to the implications of God entering into the world and doing this. All this to say, words are necessary on this journey. And doing kingdom work involves recognizing um, the king. Uh, but where words are necessary, that really leads us to the fourth and final question. Hey, let me add real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, all three of those people had the scripture or a divine encounter or a vision. And in every case, God sent someone to speak to them. And by the way, you need, you need all three. I mean, I'll tell you a story. It's amazing how God pursues people. When my mother was dying uh, in, in the last week of her life, um, she had borne witness to Jesus so faithfully in her brutal struggle with cancer the last several months of her life. And um, had such peace. Had, we had a woman come forward and want to take my mother around the world the last 40 days of her life or so when my mom was still moving around on a walker. And Mom turned her down, and my mother loved to travel. And I remember telling Mom, why aren't you going to do this? It's a first-class ticket. This lady wants to do this for you. And my mother says, oh, Chris, you know, in less than 90 days, I'm probably going to appear before the King of Kings. What on earth can I see that's going to compare to that? I'd rather just stay here with my grandchildren and eat Tex-Mex and go to my local church and pray with people on the prayer team. And so she had this spirit about her in, in great darkness. Well, a hospice nurse, which is amazing. You think every hospice nurse is a believer. They're not. A hospice nurse had been caring for her and made the remark uh, to my wife in passing, I, have, I haven't been with very many people who have such a spirit of peace about them in the midst of profound suffering with a tumor growing out of their back. And my wife said, well, we, we believe that has a lot to do with, with Jesus. And my wife said, have you thought about Jesus much? And the hospice nurse said, I've been having a recurring dream the last couple of years. She, my wife said, tell me about the dream. And she said, I've been dreaming that I'm at this fork in the road, and there is a faceless being at the fork. And one part of the road is wider than the other. <laughs> and the faceless being is telling me to choose the thinner road. And Tara said, are you familiar ever with something that Jesus said? <laughs> Where he talked about a wide road and a narrow road, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the road, and the lady had never heard of it before in her life. Tara went on to share with her the word of Jesus from Matthew 7 that's in response to a recurring dream that she had had that she opened up about because she had been touched by the life of somebody whose light was shining in the midst of great darkness. Do you see all those work together? Mm -hmm. Tara wasn't in it by herself, but the Lord had been pursuing that woman. But that had been aroused by her witnessing how my mother was trafficking in those very last difficult days. All three came together. She gave her life to the Lord the day before my mother died. I told the church later, my mother decided if she was going home, I guess she decided she's going to take someone with her. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to, I, I, here's the last question. It has to do with words, and it's this. Are we more concerned with what we have to lose than what others have to gain? This is a question for our churches and some of our attitudes. Are we more concerned with what we have to lose than what others have to gain? Because risk will be involved personally and church-wise. Are we more concerned with what we have to lose than what others have to gain? This is about getting over the hump and having more of a concern with what others have to gain than what we have to lose. Paul said in Romans 1 and 16 and 17, he goes on to say, hey, I'm obligated, both to Jews and Greeks, I'm obligated. I owe them a debt in the Greek. I, I owe it to them. We owe it to people. 
You know, Paul said, we've been entrusted with the gospel. I was once given $500 to give to a college student in another town I was going to speak. I promise you I would have been in trouble had I not given the $500 to the college student that the parents asked me to transport to them. I had been entrusted with it. I owed it to that college student. We've been entrusted with something. We owe it. How much do you have to not love somebody to not get around to sharing something of Jesus with them? So, um, have we lost the theology of the lost? Are we convinced that Jesus is the way, not a way? Have we divorced justice from evangelism? Providing us with a way to feel like we're, quote, doing work in the community without actually ever helping the community find Christ. And then finally, are we more concerned with what we have to lose than what others have to gain? And we're closing with that question because if you want to create a more evangelistic culture, you've got to know it will come at a price. Churches inevitably drift taking care of the insider. And especially if the church has been in decline, it is so hard for leaders not to be focused on what must we do to make sure that no one else leaves instead of what must we start doing to see more people come who are far from God. And so um, uh, I think inevitably most, most leaderships of churches even though it's not stated, their, their number one goal is keep the peace. And we're running hospices. And hospices are sweet places where we're taking really good care of really nice people until they die. The mission is not to run a hospice. Um, there's a story we tell as part of our Lord at the church I'm at. It happened years before even I came back in the 1970s. We had an elder named Don McCam. And this is going to be hard for anyone uh, of uh, but my generation to even imagine. But the issue of the day was coffee and donuts in the Bible classes. And some of you are nodding your head saying, I remember that fight. So a lady comes in one day and she is livid and she, I can't believe we have coffee and donuts in the Bible classes. And she just lets in to Brother McCam and she's upset. Historically, how do churches handle those kind of conflicts? Well, I'll go meet with all the elders, and if it's going to make people upset, we'll just stop it. He put his arm around that lady, and he said, you know, sister, if coffee and donuts and not seeing them in a Bible class is critical to your faith, then within a 10-mile radius of this building, there's probably five other churches you can go to next week. But if you come back to this church next week, you come back with a good attitude, and you never fuss about this again. I say that because over the years in our leadership, whenever we're in a situation where we're tempted to move in the direction of fear and to make a decision based on fear instead of on mission, all one of us has to do is say, brothers, coffee and donuts. And we remember, and I do believe over the years God has shown favor on our church because of that decision. Uh, I don't believe, you know, you've heard the old line, churches shouldn't be cruise ships, they should be um, battleships. Well, I would argue churches should be aircraft carriers, where we come together and we inf uh, get fueled up by fellowship and by the Spirit of God, and people are launched, and we go out on mission for Jesus Christ. And so one thing I've stopped doing in my church in the past, whenever I would try to lead toward a change that would help us for mission, people, well, I just think Rick has an agenda. Oh, no, I don't have an agenda. Well, I stopped saying that. Of course I have an agenda. <laughs> if you're a leader and you don't have an agenda, you shouldn't be a leader. <laughs> and so I, I say it pretty regularly now. Yeah, I have an agenda. Here's the agenda. To bring as many as possible, as soon as possible, by all means possible, short of sin, to know Jesus Christ. That's the agenda. And that agenda is going to drive how we're going to make decisions, not fear. So, are we driven more by who we might lose than by who we'll never gain if we keep things the way they are? I think that's a really important Rick, can question. I ask you a quick question for you? How old is the Hills? We are 60, uh, 66 years old. Okay. Uh, the branch is 112 years old. Uh, there's a lot. Both of our cultures have to learn 
We could tell you some disaster stories. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to encourage you that we're not coming from places that have been planted in the last 10 years. No. Um, it's possible for an old dog to learn new tricks. Yes, it is. And yes, I want to is. encourage you with that. We have big challenges. Paul didn't minister like we're ministering today. We're ministering in churches with five generations of people. Mm -hmm. So we got some challenges. But it's possible for an old dog to learn new tricks. And I want to encourage you with that. Yeah. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. So sure. um, we're going to close. We're sorry we didn't leave time for questions, but Chris was long-winded. And um, <laughs> we may get some tomorrow. We promise we'll have some on uh, Friday if you're still here. But uh, what we're going to do tomorrow is we are going to unapologetically explain why we are using our assembly and our weekend gatherings as a huge open door for lost people, and uh, hopefully you'll be encouraged. So thank you very much, and maybe we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you all.